book of 1 Peter is all about obedience. Suffering, yes, but obedience in the face of suffering. That is what the theme of the book of 1 Peter is all about. Notice here in chapter 5 and in verse 1, it begins with a, a conjunction. It says, therefore, any student of the scripture knows that when you see the word therefore, you have to do what? You have to figure out what it's there for, right? So we begin with that. It's a small, simple conjunction, un in the Greek. And it refers back to what has just preceded in chapter 4 and really sets the tone for what we're going to look at in the first four verses of chapter 5. Notice in verse 19, Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, on the basis of that, he's going to give some exhortation to the elders. What do elders do? Very simply, elders do what is right in the face of suffering. That's what elders do. Elders do what is right in the face of suffering because they know that it is the will of God for them. It's as simple as that. Now, I'm not going to finish with a statement that simple. We're going to stretch it out and, and look at it from many different angles here. But when you boil it all down, that's what this is about. Notice what Peter says. Therefore, in the face of suffering, do the will of God. I exhort the elders among you, he says. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. This is the designated duty of an elder, Peter says. Parakaleo, I exhort you, I appeal to you, I don't command you, I appeal to you. I appeal to your sense of what is right rather than in press upon you my apostolic authority. Notice here in verse 1 that Peter bases this exhortation really on three grounds. Do you see that? He bases it upon the fact that he's a fellow elder. He bases it upon the fact that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and he bases it upon the fact that he's a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. This is the basis behind Peter's exhortation to these elders. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I know what it's like, he's saying. I, too, am an elder. I understand the responsibilities of being an elder. I understand the difficulties of the task. I am a fellow elder among you. Yes, I'm an apostle, but I also fill the role of an elder, of a shepherd among the church of God. I can sympathize with your hardships. I understand your position. I understand that in the midst of suffering, that you must do what is right. I know what that's like, Peter says. This underlies my exhortation to you. I'm a fellow elder. But not only that, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter is not bringing this up because he's showing his apostle's badge to them. He's, in fact, has a much more subtle argument behind this. 
What he's reminding them by this, he says, I, I've been a witness, I've, I've seen the sufferings of Christ, I was there, and, and Christ is the chief shepherd who suffers for the sheep. I saw that, Peter says. He's connecting the thought of suffering together here. The suffering flows through this passage as it flows through the book. And he's saying Christ suffered for the sheep. But he did what was right, and therefore you, I exhort you, you endure suffering for the sheep as well. Peter can identify with the present hardships of the elders of these churches. But not just the suffering, look, the third basis for his exhortation. He says, I am a partner also of the glory that is to be revealed. Suffering now, yes. If need be, if it's according to the will of God, verse 19, if that's what's required of you. Beloved, think about this with me. Throughout the history of the church, it is the leadership of the church that suffers. It is the leadership of the church that feels the brunt of persecution, always first to the leadership. So suffer... Yes, if necessary, but, but recognize that there is glory to be revealed. Do you see that? Not the glory of heaven that you enter upon death. Peter's not talking about that. He's not saying just hang in there until you die and then it'll get better. That's not his motivation. No, he's referring actually to glory, some, a glory that is more glorious than that, if I can say it such. He's talking about the glory to be revealed at the return of Christ. He's talking about the return of Christ. Look at verse, well, go to chapter 1 and look at verse 10 and 11. He says there in chapter 1, verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter tasted the glories of Christ, didn't he? When he and two other apostles accompanied our Lord up onto a mountain. You remember that? And there up on the mountain, Christ peeled back His flesh and for a moment in time, they glimpsed the glory of the Incarnate One. They saw Him in His glory. The glory that is to be revealed when He comes for His own. That's the kind of glory that motivates us to ministry. Peter is motivating these elders to accept the task before them, to accept the suffering if necessary, because there is going to be glory coming. There is glory coming for those who faithfully serve. If I can add a footnote here, the rapture of the church is, is such an important doctrine not because the church is going to be rescued from the tribulation. Yes, that's true, but that's really a stunted view of what the rapture is all about. The rapture of the church is about Christ coming in His glory. It is the beginning of that second coming. 
And it is a very strong motivator for service. When you think about the fact that you might face Christ at any time, that He can come tonight for His church, that is a powerful motivator for service. The Apostle John, who, by the way, is also called an elder, calls himself an elder, he says in 1 John 2 and verse 28, that we don't want to be ashamed at the coming of Christ. It is a very powerful motivator. So Peter here, verse 1, is exhorting these elders. He says, I know what it's like, I'm one of you. I've witnessed the suffering of the chief shepherd himself. Any suffering that you could undergo would be a, a mere derivative of that. And I understand the glory that will be revealed when he returns. And I'm telling you that based on these things, you must do something. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. We have an imperative. We have an imperative here. Act like a shepherd. Tend the flock of God. This word sort of encompasses the whole aspect of what it means to be a shepherd, all wrapped up in this, this one verb. It has much more than just the idea of teaching or preaching. It's bigger than that. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. It's like the care of an animal is more than merely feeding it and putting it outside. I have a dog. It requires more than just giving her some food and throwing her outside. That's not caring for that animal. I actually had to take the wretched beast to the vet. <laughs> That's part of the shepherding process. But I love her. Shepherding involves guiding. Shepherding involves guarding. Shepherding involves feeding. Shepherding involves folding. It's a total word. It's an all-encompassing process. Someone a long time ago said, if you don't like the smell of sheep, stay out of the barnyard. If you don't like ministering among the people of God, and an elder's responsibilities are not for you. It requires us to pour ourselves out. Peter is writing 30-something years after his encounter with Christ, the resurrected Christ. Go with me back to John's Gospel and be reminded of this. Peter has had a lot of time to reflect on what it means to shepherd. Go to John 21 and... This is familiar to most of you. This is where Christ restores John or Peter after his, after his failure, after his loss of nerve, after his faithlessness in the face of persecution and suffering. But Peter has had time to think about this. And, and so he writes here in John 21 and beginning in verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, Shepherd, my sheep. Said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, Peter. I think Peter has had plenty of time to reflect on those words. And he writes to these elders. And he says to them, shepherd the flock of God. For the biblical writers, I think, sort of ultimately, their understanding of what it means to be a shepherd is derived from the Old Testament. Look with me, if you would, to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 34. It's a fascinating chapter here. We, we kind of learn by negative example here in Ezekiel 34 as God rebukes the shepherds of Israel. But in the process of God's rebuke as we examine it, we get a, a good idea, I think, of what it means to be a biblical shepherd, what it means to shepherd the flock. Ezekiel 34 and verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Answer, Yes. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for the lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. In the process of this negative example, there is a, a number of positive examples that can be pulled out of it as to what God expects for those who are shepherding the flock. Do you see them? It begins with not being concerned with your own comfort, but being concerned more with the comfort of the sheep. Taking care of the sickly, it says in verse 4. Healing the diseased. Binding up the broken. Bringing back the wandering ones. We make spiritual application, and rightfully so. There's much to be learned by observing what God has to say here. Shepherding the flock of God involves preaching, teaching, it involves praying. It involves encouragement. It involves exhortation. It involves the ugly side of confrontation. It involves admonishment. It involves pleading with people. There is much involved in shepherding. It's an expansive term. Go back to 1 Peter 5 and 
He says, shepherd the flock of God. The flock of God. Do you see that? Whose flock is it? It is God's flock. The flock is not the personal property of the elders. It is God's personal property. We began this whole series a month and a half ago. And we said, whose church is this? Answer, it is God's church. It is God's church. It is God's Bible studies, God's Sunday school classes, God's fellowship groups, God's choir, and on and on. It is His, not ours. We're to shepherd the flock of God among you. See it? Among you. There is a a geographical designation involved here. The elders are not responsible for other people's flocks, other congregations. They're not our responsibility. We are responsible for the flock of God among us. There's a local nature to our ministry. So what is the extent of our ministry? How is it designated to us? We're told to shepherd God's flock among us. That's where our responsibilities lie. Then Peter begins to regulate our motives in this task. And he does it by a series of contrasts. You see them here? Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Do you see him? He gives us three of them. And by these contrasts, he regulates the motives of the elders. Look at the first one. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Not because you must do it. Peter says, a quote here by a fine Bible commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, speaking on this passage, he writes, an elder must not be a reluctant draftee doing an irksome task because he feels he cannot escape it. The work of a shepherd should not be coerced. It should not be forced. It should not be done because of some sort of human expectations that have been put upon us. Not under compulsion, Peter says. But there is a a godly kind of compulsion, I think, that's important to recognize. Paul writes, you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, if any man, what? Aspires or desires the work of an elder, it's a a fine work that he wants to do. There is sort of a sovereign compulsion that's created in a man's heart. That's good. That's okay. That's godly. It's the human compulsion that Peter says can't characterize an elder. An elder can't be motivated based on external factors. It has to be an internal motivation. Jeremiah makes a statement in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. Don't turn there, just listen to it. 
He says, but if I say, I will not remember him, that is God, or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. God has ignited in the heart of that prophet a passion to speak his word, a passion that cannot be quenched. You remember Jeremiah's ministry, don't you? God commissioned Jeremiah to the people and he said, go and preach to the people, Jeremiah, and by the way, they are not going to listen to you at all. Not at all. In a moment of discouragement, Jeremiah says, I'm done. These, these sheep have sharp hooves and teeth that bite. I've had it. And he says, but I can't. It's like a fire burning inside me. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. There is a, a divine fire within him that, that bursts forth in no way to be contained. So there is a, a godly compulsion, a sovereignly placed compulsion. We, we recognize that in various terms. Many times it's called... The call, right? You've heard that. There's a call in a man's life. It's the passion of God that's been put there to do the work of a shepherd. So not under human compulsion, contrast, but what? What's the text say? Voluntarily, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, it says. There's an idea of a of the volunteer nature involved here, that there's nothing else I can do. This is, this is what God has made me to do. If you look at your scriptures carefully here, you should notice that there's some italics. Do you see that? The will of, do you see that in italics in your text? I hope you do see that, because it's not there in the Greek. It's been inserted by the translators to sort of smooth it out and, and render an understanding of what Peter's talking about. Bible translators do this all the time. It's nothing to be afraid of. There are italics insertions in all Bibles. Because every Bible, every Bible is a translation that involves some measure of interpretation. So the translators of the New American Standard here have inserted these words, the will of. Because what it says in the Greek is voluntarily according to God. That's what it says. Voluntarily, according to God. There's a preposition, kata, according, translated in the English. But I think they've missed it here. I think if they'd have left it alone for us to wrestle with, according to God, kata, that on. I think what Peter's talking about is according to the standard or the model of God. Back in 1 Peter... Chapter 1, look at verse 15. Go back there. There's a similar construction. Lends support for this understanding. It's translated in the New American Standard, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. But if you look over in your, in your margin, you should see an, an alternative where it says literally according. Do you see that? Same preposition, kata. They've translated it here, like. I think they would have done well if they'd have kept that same 
understanding over here in chapter 5. Voluntarily, like God. Like God. Like, like God's model. Like God's standard. Like the chief shepherd himself. Who said over in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what Peter means here by voluntarily. Imitating the chief shepherd of the sheep. Running through this whole passage is a, a comparison to Christ. It just comes over and over again. He is our model. We're to emulate him in ministry. So not under compulsion, but voluntarily, like God. Next contrast, not for what? Sordid gain. Disgraceful gain. Filthiness, if you like. It's here trying to convey the idea of an, of an avoidance, of an eagerness for base gain. You're not supposed to be in it for the money. That's what Peter says. You're not in this for the money. It's kind of an interesting thought if you pause and just wrestle with that a little bit. It seemed to imply to me that the elders of these churches, at least, had some measure of financial compensation that came to them. But that's not so strange, is it? Doesn't Paul say that over in 1 Timothy 5? Those who labor hard, right, are worthy of double honor. The paying of the elders is not uncommon at all. But it's not to be their motivator. Not for sordid gain. Not for money. Not like a hireling, he's saying. This is not a job. It's a passion. Contrast. But with eagerness. See it? With eagerness. They don't punch a clock. They don't come in at nine, punch the clock, go home at five, job's done. It's a 24-hour job. So whenever the people need you, you're to be among the sheep. Eagerness. Readiness. Enthusiasm. Certain measure of enjoyment, even. Hmm? Remember when I first left the bank and started on, on staff here, I told Carol, I said, I can't believe this. I am getting paid to do this job. Don't tell the rest of the elders, but I would do this for free. <laughs> and I still would. It's like a dream come true. Just amazing. Not for the money. Eagerly, he says. Third contrast. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. Lording it over, it, it denotes pride. It denotes sort of a authoritarian spirit. Elders are not little church bosses that run around. He says, they're to lead by example. Is there authority that goes with the position of an elder? You bet. There is. But it can't go to your head. 
You're some kind of tin God. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. Do you see that? Allotted to your charge. It has the idea of a, a portion or a share that has been entrusted to you. You've been given something, sort of a, a specific pool, a piece of God's flock has been entrusted to you, has been allotted to you by God's providence. Tremendous responsibility that goes with that, if you think about it. God has entrusted to an elder a piece of his flock. A piece of his flock. I think that each elder within a congregation, and notice the plural there back in verse 1. Don't miss that. Next week we're going to talk about the plurality of elders. So I don't want to push that at this moment. But, but there's not one elder in a fellowship. There's a plurality of elders. There's a, there's a group of God-given men. But I think where it says here in verse 3, nor yet as, as lording it over those allotted to your charge, it includes the idea that within the larger congregation, there are smaller congregations over which the elders have shepherding responsibilities. The congregation is kind of divided up. We're trying to do that here. I mean, you, those of you that are involved in adult Sunday school classes, we're, we're, we're trying to implement that by having elders in each of those classes that will be responsible to shepherd the class. I mean, it's not my job to be, to be the hospital visitor for everybody. There are those for me to visit, clearly. But that's not my first responsibility. It's not my first responsibility to be the church counselor. Everybody, they have a need, call me. No, if you have a need, call your elder. They are among you. They are shepherding those of you allotted to their charge. There's a, a division of labor, if I can say it that way. It's involved in a plurality. Second part of the contrast here, the proving to be examples to the flock. See, how can an elder be an example to the flock if, if he's not among the flock, right? How can people examine his life and say, I want to pattern my life after this man if they don't know him? And how are they going to know him unless they're involved at a small and intimate level? I don't know everybody in this church. I don't think I ever will make an effort. It's just too many. Too many of you. I can't have a relationship with everybody. But the elders can have relationships with people that I don't have relationships with. And they can minister in ways that I can't minister. Proving to be examples. Tupas. An example or a pattern. Literally, it's the impression left in a coin when it goes through the mint. It's struck. And Caesar's head would appear on the coin. And saying, that's what elders are like. They are to leave that impression or that example, that pattern, 
the congregation. There are to be men that are worthy to follow and to imitate. Elders lead. As shepherds, they lead. By example. They don't drive the sheep. Right? God calls the people of God sheep. He doesn't call them cattle. Right? Cattle are driven. Not true? Sheep are led. Cattle are driven. Sheep are led. So we're not ranchers. We're shepherds. Big difference. Big difference. God could have used either metaphor, couldn't he? But he used the one that's most appropriate. So the extent of a of a shepherd's ministry is designated here for us in verses 1 and the first part of 2. The motive of it is regulated here for us in verse 2 and verse 3 by these three contrasts. And finally, the quality of an elder's ministry is evaluated. You see that in verse 4? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is payday coming. Payday is coming. Notice, Christ is the chief shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. All the other shepherds are under shepherds and they report to him. To whom do the elders report? Whom are the elders responsible for? To. To Christ. The elders do not work for the congregation. They work for Christ in and among the congregation. When the chief, the chief shepherd appears, phanerothentos, we like that. That's an aorist active participle. You like that, Vince? Has been made manifest, could be translated. Has become visible. It's used over here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Same participle. It says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared, same word, in these last times for the sake of you. It has to do with his first advent over there in chapter 1 and verse 20. Here, when the chief shepherd is made manifest, when the chief shepherd appears, he's talking about the second coming. Talking about the second coming. When Christ is revealed in his glory for all the world to see, there will be a, a moment of evaluation for the shepherds of his church. That's what verse 4 is saying. A point of evaluation. Paul speaks of the same thing. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, we'll begin it at verse 9. Paul says there in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. He is talking about those in leadership of the church building upon the foundation of the church, which is the apostles. Let a man be careful, Paul says, how he builds on that foundation. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. What day? The day of Christ's appearing, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. There is an accounting coming to the shepherds of God's church. There is an evaluation moment when Christ himself, when he returns, will call the shepherds of the church before him and he will evaluate what they have done. And that which is made of precious stones and gold and silver will receive a reward, Paul says. And that which is so much wood, hay and stubble will just be burned up. Just so much stuff. Back to 1 Peter 5. Same thought. When the chief shepherd appears is made visible, is manifest to the world, you, elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. Stephanos, crown, it's actually a, a garland wreath. It was given to those who were victorious in the athletic games of Greece. It was given to those who distinguished themselves in public service. Not a crown full of jewels and gold, just a, a wreath, a simple wreath placed upon your head, honoring you for work well done. You will receive the Stephanos. But not like the garland made of greenery that fades, right? And within a couple of days, it's all brown and dead. What kind are you going to get, elders? If you hang in there, if you persevere, if you do it the way it's been laid out for you and modeled for you through Christ... What do you got to look forward to? An unfading. You see that? An unfading crown of glory. What is this crown of glory? What we have here is two nouns in, op in apposition. Two nouns in apposition. What does it mean when, when nouns are in apposition to one another? It means that one noun restates the other one. So what is the crown of glory here? What is, it's equivalent to saying the crown which is glory. The crown which is glory. You will receive the unfading crown which is glory. The glory that Christ will bring upon you for a job well done. Hmm? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. You have been faithful with little things. You will be entrusted with big things. How do I know this is a apposition here? Well, I know it because there are other crowns spoken of in the New Testament, and they are all in apposition as well. There's a crown of righteousness spoken of in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. And there is the crown, which is righteousness. There's a crown of life spoken of in Revelation 2.10, and there it means the crown, which is life. It's the same here. The crown, which is glory. This is a thrilling passage, I think. I, I just get so excited. When I was 
working this through earlier this week or last week, I, I was up on my tippy toes, bouncing up and down. I was so excited about this passage. What does an elder do? What does an elder do? He gives himself to the sheep. Totally, unreservedly. Pours himself out. It doesn't matter if you suffer. You hang in there. You persevere. Go to Acts 20. See it modeled there. Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Paul's now going to remind them of what his ministry was like as a fellow elder among them so that he might motivate them to the same kind of service. And when they had come to them, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. You know what I was like, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which were coming upon me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip ahead. Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I didn't hold anything back. I gave you everything that you needed. Good news and bad news. Now be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. What does an elder do? Can you answer the question? If your children would come up to you, maybe, maybe your kids are together on the playground and one of them says, well, my daddy's an electrician. My daddy's a plumber. My daddy's a lawyer. My daddy's a banker. Someone says, well, my daddy's an elder. They all look at him and say, well, what do elders do? What do elders do? Let's pray. God, our Father, it is only by grace that any man with feet of clay can be in a position of leadership in the church of God. Our Father, there are none that are qualified in and among themselves. We are all sinners saved by grace. But Lord God, there are some whom you have called out to a noble task. You have put within their hearts a passion for the things of God and for the people of God. A passion that would cause them to pour themselves out for the sheep. Lord God, I thank you for the elders of this church. I thank you for my brothers who give selflessly week in and week out untold hours for this congregation. They carry it, Father, on their hearts. They labor among your people. Lord God, you have blessed us so richly. Lord God, I pray that we would hold them in high esteem. 
not because of who they are and what they have done, but because of what you have done through them, that you would receive the glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.